0: So we're on the second, um, second sermon in this two-sermon series on the image of God and what it means to be human, um, from a biblical perspective, and... Uh, because last service I preached for almost 60 minutes, I want to skip the, like, 20-minute introduction to this. And I, let's narrow it down to two minutes, and if you want to know, because it, it's sort of review, so just listen to last week or listen to the first hour thing. But there are multiple views of humanity. There's the colloquial kind of cynical view of humanity, like everybody's terrible, and there's the, there's the romantic view that everybody has a caramely center. And then if you know, if you went to college, maybe, or you like to read little books, there's all, I mean, we've been through all kinds of cycles of what a human being is over the last— couple millennia, but especially 200 years. But one of the questions that you have to ask yourself if you're a Christian is, what is the most morally and spiritually significant truth about human beings? And it's none of these. Whatever truth there is to them, it's that God has created us in his image, that we are a good, and that we are in a fallen condition. That is, sin has infected who we are and has led us in a different direction and confused our being and what we know ourselves to be and caused us to forget really who we are. And then Christ has come to regenerate and save and redeem and transform us back into the full expression of the image of God that God will then draw us into complete and we will live in with him forever. That's essentially the Christian story. Right? Which means... The very first idea on the basis of that is if you believe that human beings are created in God's image, which the Bible says all the way through, the first point of humanity is that we would reflect the one in whose image we're made. Right? The, uh, we are taught about human beings being in God's image. And that's one of the most important things that we can know on page one of the Bible. Numero uno. This is now a bilingual service. Right? Like, we, it, it, first page, Okay? It says human beings, both male and female, are created in God's image—sorry— are created in God's image, and we are—we are created with that dignity, and that dignity is attached to a purpose. So if you look at Genesis 1, it says— God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so on. In both cases, it's repeated twice, which is Hebrew literature for emphasis, right? That's why, let's do this, and then it describes him doing it. Why would you do that? Right? Why in Acts is like chapter 9 or something on Peter going to Cornelius' house, and then the next chapter on him explaining why he did what he did at Cornelius' house to everybody else. Right? Because it's the whole turning point of the whole book. It's the huge realization that the Gentiles are included, right? Same thing. Why would this be repeated? Because this is the main point of chapter 1. That for all the amazing things that happened— This happened. Human beings, both male and female, were created in God's image, and in relationship to that image, God gave them dominion over everything and told them to spread, fill the earth, and multiply, and live out that mandate in the whole world. Right? In chapter 3, which is like the fourth page of the Bible, right, human beings lapsed from that condition through sin, and are in a fallen condition, and that therefore there is a redemption story. So there's a creation and a creation mandate story, but because we have lost our way in that, God created a second story, a redemption story, where the image that was marred and broken and bent would be remade, and he did that by sending someone who would exemplify true humanity, Jesus the Christ, the God-man, who would die to forgive us so that we could be reconnected with the one we image, and who would then give us God's spirit and power so that we could be remade and reformed into that image. It says this in 2 Corinthians 3.8, that all, and we all, that's we who believe in Jesus, with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. That is, we're reconnected with God and everything that—now, you might be thrown by this word glory, but basically, the Bible needs a word for everything that's amazing about God— that sort of radiates and reflects from him, that affects everything, and that is amazingly positive. And it needs to communicate all that kind of in one semantical unit. And the word that it uses is glory. And so there's some of these words kind of like, oh, there's that word again. Like glory and grace. you got to get a handle on those ones because we use them a lot. They're incredibly important. And so we, when we come to Jesus, we want to be remade in his image. And so we look to Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory— so that we know what we were meant to be, because we know what he is, and we can then—we receive that glory, and we reflect that glory as the image bearers, right? And it says we are being transformed, so that's progressive, right? It's happening over time in us, now that we've come to believe, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, I could—we could do a whole series on that one. And then this one in Colossians, Let's start at verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed— do you see the progressive nature of it again? In knowledge of the image of its creator, right? And then yesterday we talked about Jesus being, like, the most reliable image of the image. And I'll get back to that in a few minutes, but I don't want to spend time on it now because we'll be here for quick—oh, I haven't even started this yet. So I, my sermon just started. So, um, once we recognize that we're made in God's image, Genesis 1, if you read that carefully at all, makes very clear that we should immediately know that there is a demand based in that as well. It's not just like, oh, you're creating God's image, now do whatever you want with it. That's actually not the story. The story is, is that within the exact same verse and put together twice in that passage, God gives everything to us and that demands everything from us, right? He gives us the grace out of which he will acquire what he desires. That is, we are given his image to image him. You cannot receive the image and then not image him. That's not okay. The fact that you are what you are, you have to be what you are. You are divinely, spiritually, universally, and completely morally obligated to be what you are. And that happens on page one. In order to... Recognize what the image demands. This is the way I'll summarize it, because it's, it gets a little complicated, but you can get your head around it in two parts. The, the image demands our acceptance of the creation mandate and the redemption mandate. The creation mandate and the redemption mandate. You don't even have to get to the New Testament to see this in God's plan. In Isaiah 43, he's talking about his people and their purpose in the world. And this is what it says in Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. That's the people of God. Everyone who is called by name, whom I created for my glory. Right? They have a purpose. There's a reason why he created them. He created them for his glory. That is, what's amazing about God would be reflected and refracted through them into the earth well. Right? And then he says... Whom I formed and made, lead out those who have eyes but are blind and who have ears but are deaf. All the nations will gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? So he's saying now all the people who refuse to believe in the king creator who created image bearers, people who will not look at the world that way. And look at it in a different way. He says, now bring all those people out, people who I gave eyes to, but won't see with them, who I gave ears to, but won't hear with them the truth. Let them bring out people who will argue for their position, right? And he says, let them bring in their witnesses and prove they were right so that others may hear and say it's true. So let them speak to the rest of humanity and say, this is the way you should look at the world. And let everybody go, yeah, that's right. And then he says this. He says, but you are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen. If you were here the middle of last year, who is my servant in the context of Isaiah 40s? Right? It's the Christ, Jesus. So he's saying my people, the people of God, that's we who believe in Jesus and his servant, forms a body of witnesses that witnesses to all of humanity something. Right? Notice the so that clause. We're going to find out exactly what these witnesses are being brought forth for. It's very specific. Right? so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Do you see how the first implication is that human beings have to know and believe that they belong to the one who created them in his image and that we stand as witnesses to all of humanity of that truth. That's before there was ever a Great Commission or a church. Believing humanity, those who would accept that God is king and we bear his image and are meant to live that out, were always a group of people subselected to convince the rest of humanity to come back to themselves. And then he says, Before me no God was formed, nor will one after me. I, Even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Meaning, the reason we're supposed to seek to persuade all of humanity to come back to themselves is because it's just true. There is no other God. There's no other Savior. So what are these two things then? The creation mandate and the redemption mandate. The creation mandate is basically the mandate God gave us when he created us. When God created us, he didn't just create us and turn us loose. He actually told us exactly what we were meant to do. And that was that we were supposed to develop and steward the earth— and we were to utilize the only institution he gave us before the fall, which was the human family. He says that there's two things we're meant to do. That is, one is we're meant to actually increase in number. Now, whether or not that is relatively true today, given normal human population, I'm not talking about that. What he was saying, at least, was is that there should be a sufficient number of people to do the work of having dominion in the earth. Now, that's a relative question. How many people does it take to have dominion in the earth? Well, turns out, it depends on how much technology you have, and some other things. But we were meant to fill the earth, that is, that there would be enough people in every locale of the earth to participate in lordship over it, to have dominion, to bring out its creative potential, and to shepherd it. And so, that happens, and then what happens? God creates the capacity for multiplying in chapter 2, right? And you know chapter 2 doesn't happen after chapter 1, because chapter 1 explicitly says both genders are created, and then chapter 2 tells us how they're created, with an emphasis on the creation of a a procreative, two-genders-in-complementary-union-family that has children. Then what happens in chapter 3? The exact same reference to the creation mandate, because what what gets cursed in chapter 3? Right? See, we we get all pulled into the gender of this and we get angry for women, but what gets cursed with women? Childbearing—that it's going to be not fun, right? I'm going to greatly increase your pains in childbearing. That's pretty much borne itself out in human history. And secondly, what happens—what does he say to the man? He says, The ground is now cursed because of you, and you're going to toil. So he doesn't take away the mandate, but he says, now that you're under the curse of sin, the very thing you're created to do is going to be the very thing that's going to be much more difficult. But the creation mandate remains. Through the institution of the human family, of two people of opposite genders coming together to create a new procreative and dominion-based unit— Now, human beings would then multiply, and they would also create all kinds of other institutions and organizations that we call society. But it flowed from a single institution that God commanded and for which he created complementary genders. That is, the family, marriage, and procreation, and children. Does that make sense? The second is the redemption mandate. When the creation mandate went awry— God didn't let it go He acted judicially the way he he chose to And I assume because morally it was the way he must He stood against the people of his own mandate But he didn't give up on the people or the mandate That is, the whole redemption story is the rehabilitation of the creation mandate That's all we're doing here, kids Right? And, and which one isn't going to make it into heaven? The creation mandate or the redemption mandate? In heaven, the redemption mandate is over. It's over. It's completed. What, what will be completed? What will be completed is that humanity will have been fully rehabilitated to express the creation mandate in the recreated creation that will still exist physically if revelation can be taken at face value that we'll be embodied creatures forever. What will we be doing? Enjoying God and reflecting Him in a creation as part— You know, we joke that we won't need doctors—doctors and preachers are going to have to retrain in heaven. Lots of other people might be doing something relatively similar, right? The redemption mandate—these verses that we talked about before, about being remade in the image, right? And the command, in what we call the Great Commission, that we must go out and make disciples of all people, and that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he would give us the Spirit, and that we would be his witnesses to all people in the world. Pick up that language of witnesses. Does that sound familiar? It was in Isaiah 43. We would be his witnesses to all people, to all of humanity, to call them back to the created image that's in them that they have forgotten. Right? Through Christ. Right? Now, If that's the case, if what we're called to to do is to live out these two mandates through God's two institutions, we're to live out the creation mandate through his institution of the human family, and we're to live out the redemption mandate through his institution of the the new humanity, the people of God that have accepted that's what they're meant to be, and have been sent out into humanity to witness to it what the Bible calls the church. That we exist among these two peoples. Now, we may participate in lots of other institutions— And everyone who is part of that has to be part of the church. The family will be normative. That is, the vast majority of us will do it. It doesn't mean everybody will do it. If you read the whole Bible, you'll come to 1 Corinthians 7, which enormously dignifies singleness. But the Bible affirms for humans the normativity of the family. That is, it is the default— It is the narrative. It is—you don't—I read something this week that said, you can't know what a person's gender is or any of those things until you ask them. Now, I recognize that in some cases that's true, but it's not true for most of us. Let's not pretend that what is normative is confused because what is non-normative confuses us who are normative. We have to be enormously sensitive to people who are not normative. Right? You have to be nice to people who are short, right? I mean, just everybody who's not normative, for whatever reason, they're, they're long-term single but don't want to be. They're long-term single because they want to be. They, have, they, ha- they don't fit into some of the things that we build into these narratives. They, well, you, have to be, you should be enormously sensitive to those people. But let's not pretend that we don't know what's normative. And so if I, when I was a young man, I did not contemplate, what's the narrative? Should I get married? Well, I knew what was the normative path, because the Bible told me what it was. It didn't mean it was the only narrative I could choose, but it did mean that it had a privileged place as normativity, because walking away from it required a purpose, and it should require a a spiritual purpose, or dealing with something in providence, but I don't have time to get into that right now. Anyway, the point is, is that if we get this straight, that we're to do these two things through these two institutions, that that's what we're doing as humanity, it will frame how we answer a lot of moral questions, and it will frame a lot of ways that we answer the formation question. How do we become the kind of person that can do the kind of things that we talked about under the moral question? So let's just go in four directions here. The, the vertical application of this, the intrapersonal application of this, the horizontal with other people application of this, and the downward—how do we relate to things we have dominion over—application of this, Right? One is the vertical implications, and I talked about some of these last week. The first one is connecting to the God. You, you can't image the one you are made to image and reflect his glory disconnected from and rejecting his glory. To live out the image, step number one is reconnecting the one whom, to, to the one with whom you are meant to image. In the broken sinful condition, the way to do that is by believing in the one who bears the image perfectly and reveals it to us, the man Jesus Christ. His death morally reconnects us with God and makes a way for the Holy Spirit to come and be with us, to spiritually connect us to God, and to empower us to actually be what we were meant to be. Right? The second is that human dignity is tied to God's dignity. Human beings have to be enormously dignified, way beyond what we would ever think, and yet not make idols out of ourselves. Right? Human beings have to be enormously valuable, and yet— not God's, and that's very difficult unless you can say that somebody bears the divine image, but yet they're still a creature. They bear that image as a creation. Which, To put it the way one systematic theologian said is, we're not the big game in town. In that sense, Christians can never be humanists. You can never think of humanity first. You think of God In light of God, you understand what a human being is, including yourself and including everybody around you. And part of that is divine value, but part of that is subjugated creatureliness. You're here for a purpose that you were given. You were made by someone. And you have to bring those two together. And when you do that, you can deal with the fact that, man, we don't look at human beings like we could. You—both you, you, no matter what your self-esteem is, you are worth more than you have possibly imagined. You just think so for the wrong reasons, (laughs) right? We who have high self-esteem, like, I think I'm amazing because I had an Italian mother and I'm the baby in the family, okay? Here's the reality. I still don't think nearly highly enough of myself just for totally the wrong reasons. So my reasons for thinking I'm fabulous are terrible reasons, and I don't value myself enough. If I got that all straight, I would think that I'm more valuable than I do right now, and I would have an enormous amount of humility with it because I would see how I'm situated in relationship to God, how low I am in relationship to that, but I would see how glorious God is, and I would enjoy that and reflect it. I would be incredibly happy. I would be secure rather than insecure. My self-esteem wouldn't be floating all about. I would be courageous, and honorable, and good, and happy, and Er. funny—er—interpersonal, inside implications. One of the things when you realize that we are created in God's image, we are in the sinful condition, and that Christ has come to redeem us, you you realize that you simply cannot figure out what your identity really is by looking inside. Almost every contemporary human ideology right now either says, understand how brains work better to realize who you are. The, all the neuroscience help—have you noticed that almost every neuroscience self-help book right now? Or ev- almost every self-help book right now is a neuroscience book. It's all about how your brain works and how it tricks you, and if you knew it better, then you could blah, blah, blah. It's the new naturalism. It's really the new behaviorism. Most of them are terrible. They're built on like one study that's dumb. There's only a couple really good ones. Or it's look inside yourself. See? Cynical view, romantic view, get it? Romantic. Look inside yourself. The truth is there. The truth is there, right? Find your nougat center, right? But see, if you believe that you're created God's image, and you are shot through with the infection of sin, you're not going to look inside to that, like, irreparable mess and be like, oh, I'm going to figure out who I am. Let me just look at myself enough. You can try to know yourself, the old Greek slang, but you can't. The only way to know yourself is to look. Is not to look into the mirror, but to look to the image of Jesus. When you see things inside of you that correlate with Jesus, you can go, oh, let's keep that. And when you see things that are not in Jesus, that you're holding on to, that you want to be, you need to go, oh, huh, because, you know, see, people say ridiculous things like, well, you know, to err is human and to forgive is divine. So, you know, my sinful nature is just part of who I am. No, it's not part of who you are. Not in the nature sense. Because you can be you as you were meant to be without it. And if you could be you without it, it's not part of you. It's not part of your nature. It's just part of your condition. And sin is part of our condition. The divine image is part of our nature. You will be in the divine image forever. You will not be in the sinful condition forever. And you need to know who you are, and that will help with the questions of meaning, purpose, and significance in a world in which our understanding of our meaning, purpose, and significance is way out of whack. Defining ourselves from ourselves, do what you want, blah, blah, blah. Um, Not if you know you're made in God's image for the purpose of the one whose image you bear. It's a a very workable um, alternative to self-esteem. I was in the car with my daughter driving back from a basketball game, and she said something about learning about self-esteem in school. And she said, Daddy, do you like that word? Because I think she'd heard me ridiculing it in sermons. And I said, sweetheart, to make it perfectly clear, um, I I don't really like it just because it creates adjectival dissonance. I mean, that's—other than that, (laughs) like, I don't have a problem with it. Could be, could, right, because self-esteem can mean two things. How does the adjective, right, self modify esteem? You see, in one sense, it could be self-esteem could just be your understanding of your value and that you understand it as yourself. So you esteem yourself properly. That is, you've discovered and you realize what you're worth. It's really part of you. It's in your own heart now, and therefore you're capable of seeing yourself in that place of value, and you can live that out. I'm totally in agreement with that. Self-esteem can also mean the esteem finds its origin in yourself. That you decide yourself from yourself what you're— That's recipe for, like, a dysfunctional codependent or a narcissist. That's what that's recipe for. Either, like, I'm awesome, or I'm not worth anything, or I'm one one day and the other the other. There's nothing more unstable than the second kind of self-esteem, and the word can mean either one. That's why I don't use it. I would much rather say, you're created in God's image. You bear the divine imprint you are created to receive, enjoy, and reflect God's glory. That is everything that's good about him that is communicable to human beings in which we're similar. You're meant to embrace it and see it and live it and enjoy it and then reflect it into the earth, building everyone up, being good for all people. That's what you're meant to be. And you are in the sinful condition. You stink. And you let yourself off the hook morally way too easily. And you think you're sir, he got no. Listen, we need to live into one and away from the other. And the only way to do that is to fix our eyes on Jesus and plead with God the Holy Spirit to help us. And to live with his people and to read his written word and to live into the image and to continually kick the teeth of the sinful condition. Part of that meaning, though, is embracing normal life, our roles and our duties. You, you see people now with like the strongest frustration with things like parenting, like, oh, I've got to be a mother. Like people, there were some people I've heard at times in humanity that were like, oh, I want to be a mother, and, and actually enj- actually enjoyed being one. Like, not like the idea of it and like, oh, I have a kid, status symbol, but like, sort of like, oh, I like being with this. Like, babies are incredibly boring. They will destroy your entire life. They will suck up all of your disposable income. They will hurt your body dramatically. They will, and on and on and on, right? And what would make somebody want to raise the slowest maturing creature on earth? Right? slowest maturing and most expensive. Yay, that sounds fun, right? Ha- have it, and that's one of the reasons why in the modern world you have people trying to have children to fulfill themselves somehow, because life kind of stinks, and it doesn't. It's terrible. And it's because if you don't get into parenting, because the most—one ama- of the most amazing things that you can do is you can—you can create a eternal, immortal being that's in the image of God. That's pretty wild. You can pass on life to a divine image-bearer who may break your heart, or who may live it out, probably somewhere in between. That's amazing. Passing on life is intrinsically better than whatever you were gonna afford and buy and do and whatever. Does that make sense? Or, I'm sorry, I'm lingering on something I shouldn't have. Or, like, work. Like, people just have the hardest time with work. Like, their job is just like, oh. And they, they sort of imagine that they, their job kind of stinks, but everybody else is living in, like, work bliss, you know? But that's not true. I mean, th- this is kind of a funny one. The woman's like, oh, you hate your job. Why didn't you say so? There's a support group for that. It's called Everybody, and they meet at the bar, right? Or this one. Remember that time we came to work and we were excited? Yeah, Me neither. Right? You see, what happens is when you don't understand, your work is the creation mandate. Your family life and even, not just your family life, but your social life if you're single. Like how you interact with and build into covenant relationships with other people and lift their lives up. That, that's just another institution. Friendship is an institution of love that we create. It functions similar to the family, but it can't replace it. It's not the same thing, right? But it's an institution of love, and it lifts up other people, and it strengthens them, and it's there for them, and it helps them, and all those kinds of things. That is what you were created to do, right? And yet, for some reason—I mean, think about this. Think about how masculinity can get confused on this, right? What do men like to do with their free time? have coffee, and talk about their feelings in semi-large groups, right? I mean, stereotypically, men generally have hobbies, where they oftentimes tinker with things. That is, deep down, they want to live out the creation mandate. They want to do something. And so like whenever I have free time, I have a garden, I'm growing mushrooms in my basement—not the psychedelic ones, the gourmet (laughs) ones— Um, You know, like, I I go hunting, and I'm doing—I'm doing these things, and all of these are like, I'm attempting to do something. I'm attempting to end the life of an ungulate. I'm trying to grow a fungus. I'm trying to build a thing. I'm doing something with my—I'm trying to create. I'm trying to do something with potential. I'm—and yet, I'm drawn to things that are dynamically trivial, right? Like— Every hunting season, I'm like, I'm going to get a deer. I'm gonna, and, then, and then at some point during the season, like six hours into a sit, I'm like, why do I do this? This is idiotic. I'm freezing. There's no life in this woods. I could be eating. Like, what is—why am I here? Right? And it's because there—I realize—like, for example, this is one of the things I have been morally struggling with for almost two years, okay? And I'm getting to the point where I might have to do something about it before I understand it and listen to one of my other sermons. But why don't I have— a philanthropic hobby. Like where I'd say, I have this free time, I'm gonna do something with it, and the thing I'm going to do some- with it, it's going to actually directly impact somebody else who needs my- needs help, right? So, like, I, wh- I could have a hobby of like going to the elementary school down the street and reading with kids that are behind a reading. That, that could be my hobby, right? There's no reason that couldn't be my hobby. It would be cheaper, right? But I don't, I don't really want to. I want to go hunting. Right? And I want to do stuff that I like. That's—I I don't see that in Jesus. <laughs> when I look at Jesus, I don't go, oh yeah, you're with me on this whole hobby thing I do. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. No, I don't see that. And I'm not saying you can't have hobbies. I mean, I have hobbies. I think that my proportion may change over time. And I think hobbies shared with other people and the communication of friendship. Take a kid hunting or fishing— you go out and you play golf with somebody else, and you build a friendship, and you do it together. You go out and you—right? There are ways to utilize these things that we we love. But you see, we all have this kind of like sort of drive towards the creation mandate. Nurturing, of building, of doing. And yet, in this sinful condition, we're aiming at the—kind of aim at the wrong target some of the times. You can see it in us. But when you know who you are and you realize that the creation mandate is— filling the earth, raising up a new generation of life, and bringing out the, the earth's creation, creative potential through work, all of a sudden, I don't, I don't care what your job is. Unless your job is parasitic or rent-seeking, you are doing something you were created to do. If your job in any way adds value, you are doing something God created you to do. Now, it doesn't mean you can't change your job, and it doesn't mean you can't not like your job sometimes. But the idea that you have to do your job so that you can do something else actually may not be entirely spiritually accurate. And if you understood the difference, you might enjoy your job in a way you didn't, and that may make actually the majority of the waking hours of your life much more pleasurable, which could be considered a good thing bit of sarcasm there, um, actually goes to my next point, which is this—that, honestly, significance is the only real remedy for sarcasm. We get—we can get all sarcastic about parenting, and this and that, and marriage, and relationships, and blah, 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 and government, and jobs, and work, and all these kinds of things. We t- think about—just look around. What are we? We're a generation of sarcasm. And when most people are sincere with me, they're being, like, double entendre sarcastic. I'm being sincerely sarcastic. Like, I've honestly—honestly, honestly God said those words. Yeah, I was sarcastic, but I was being—I was being sincerely sarcastic. And then I pick on 20-year-olds for saying literally when it's not literally right. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm just a hypocrite, I guess, right? The point is, is that what overcomes that? What overcomes this cynical, sarcastic? It's when you actually understand that the thing you're doing is, no kidding, divinely significant. That the human you're working on or the world that you're helping to cause to flourish is God's creation. Your purpose is to shepherd it and love it and to bring out its potential and to manage it. When you understand the true significance of things the hold of triviality on us will fall away like the 25 to 45 hours of TV we watch every week. And we will employ ourselves in these divinely constructive ways that will actually be what we're created to do. Which would be really cool. Another one is human potential. One of the things I always laugh is when people don't know me very well and they meet my kids who are, who are pretty cool and they'll come and be like, they'll be like, Pastor Nick your kids are so cool. They have so much potential. They're smart as a whip." And I'm like, yeah, sort of, but let me just tell you how I look at potential. Like, we talk at kids like, and people like, oh, you're so smart, and you've got so much potential. You're so gifted. And like, like on a scale of one to ten, you're like a six and a half, you know? And my response is, well, sort of, but it's really more like it's plus or minus, right? I mean, like, if your kid's a six, it means they're like plus or minus a six, right? In the divine image, they have a lot of human potential, and your kid might have, you know, more than some others and less than some others, and they've got a potential of, let's say, six. But that doesn't mean they're going to be a six. It just means they could be a six positively, or they could be a six negatively, right? Like, my, actually, I heard my, grandp- one of my, my grandmother said it one time. No, my dad said this. He said, yep, Nick, he'll either save the world or ruin it. You know, that's so true, except he overestimated my potential, of course, but I mean like, yeah, it's true I'll either be good or I'll be terrible like, because that's your potential and then of course there's this squander zone in the middle Which is where most people fall, right? The point is is that when you understand your identity, you'll realize you do have a lot of potential An enormous amount of potential but that doesn't determine anything, and the sinful condition works dramatically against that potential. And if you're not looking to Jesus and seeking to see the glory of God and see that be progressively put in, empowered in your life and walking with the Spirit and looking at Christ and living with His people, seeking to understand His word and moving in that direction, you're not getting to six. It's not happening. Just doing life is going to get you somewhere in here, probably. Because you'll understand what you're— Anyway, let's move on. Horizontal implications. One of the horizontal implications is one that I'm sure you all assumed would be in here, and you're right, but it still needs to be said because it's one of the most important. And that is that when you understand the image of God, you have to understand the absolute doctrine of human equality in terms of our rights, our worth, and our significance. Our rights—I'm not—clearly I'm being careful about how I'm saying this. Our rights, our worth, and our significance are absolutely equal among all people of all groups. And we all pretend we believe that, and no, we don't, because we, we mentally at least apply it to race, and sometimes we'll apply it to gender, but usually there are caveat categories where we don't apply it. So, for example, does it apply to a sex offender? Yes, absolutely. The image of God is, is indestructible— it is there. You cannot get rid of it. It does not matter what anybody does. Hitler, to the day he died, was a human being created in God's image. He was just more of a negative 10. Right? He, that, and that's, true for, that's true for everybody. You, for example, I was—my um, daughter um, is 11 right now. Seven days before she was born, my dad was killed by a reckless driver. Um, 19-year-old guy passed a tractor-trailer on a wo line on a curve and hit my dad head-on, killed him instantly. Though he was driving 55 and wearing a seatbelt, it's a classic, classic story. My dad had always wanted a daughter. My first child was a girl. It's just, it's a wonderful story. Um, one of the things I was asked to do was to speak at the sentencing hearing of the 19-year-old who killed my dad. Speaking of which, if you're you know under 24, think about this: there's four kids that live in my house that don't have a grandfather because somebody had to get somewhere and they were thinking like a 19-year-old, okay? It's just a small point of application. So I go to the sentencing hearing, and I'm sub- my job here is to talk about how great a man my dad was, and my dad actually was a, was a very great man, morally speaking, very great man. And so I was supposed to impress upon the court how great a man my dad was, and so in comparison to the scumbag who killed him, we would understand something about how he should be sentenced. And being the sentimental person that I am, I got up and I said, listen, my dad was a really great guy. He was a great man. He was a teacher for 30 years. There's all these students that have been raised have been called him blessed. He, you know, he, he was married to my mom. He showed me how to be a man. He raised two guys. Yeah, everything—everything everything you say good about a father, I could say about my father. And then I said this. I, said, Listen, I don't I don't think that matters at all today. I don't see how that is at all relevant to this moment. If this man should be punished, it's not because he killed my dad Human beings are worthwhile, whether he killed my father, who was a very great man, or whether he killed a homeless guy who achieved nothing, or whether he killed a sex offender because he thought it would be good. None of that matters. He killed a human being. Whatever he deserves to be sentenced, he deserves to be sentenced on the grounds that he killed a human being. What my dad was relative morally to whatever doesn't matter. You just have to sentence this guy— in the way that you think affirms the worth of humanity and is hopefully as good for society and merciful towards him as possible, and I'm glad my job isn't your job. And some people might not think I did it. thats what my dad would have wanted me to say, because that's the kind of person he was. But it would have been wrong for that guy to be sentenced one day longer because my dad was a good man. The thing he should be punished for is that he killed a human, right? Now— the problem is, is that the minute you say that, people think that you can draw straight lines in terms of policy from everybody's worth something to public policy A. And as I'll talk about in the, over the next three weeks when we talk about the church and society, that's just not true. You are going to have to take that truth and add reason and study and discussion to try to get to the best application of that whatever policy you want to seek out. But, but you should start with that premise, and it's the most important one. That's what I'm saying. Now, secondly, understanding people are created in the image of God helps you deal with the things you can't not know. That is, that it rules out prejudice and bigotry without denying their validity. Wait. Sorry? Here's why. When I was a kid in school, I was told by my teachers in, like, 5th and 6th grade that you shouldn't stereotype people because stereotypes are wrong. And by wrong, she meant false. And I knew in 6th grade that she was full of it. It's just false. Some stereotypes, a few of them are totally false. Some of them, it depends on what region of the country you're in. Some of them are becoming less true over time. Some of them are becoming more true over time. But listen, I'm a highly educated family white guy who lives in a suburb. Almost every stereotype that is said of people like that is true about me. Almost all of them. I'll be on Facebook or Google and Google will be like, you might want to buy this, and I go, oh, I do want to buy that, and then I have to not. You might like this music. Oh, I do like that music. YouTube recommends something for me, and I like about half of them, maybe. I just have to not click on them, because they just go on forever. Right? So what do you do? You see, one of the reasons why this is important is because um, prejudices and bigotry are partly a function of our selfishness, our looking at things from our own perspective, magnifying our view and minimizing somebody else's. So some of it comes from moral corruption. Some of it comes from creatureliness, though. Because as limited beings who aren't omniscient, we don't play on fact. We play on percentages, what's most likely to happen. Sometimes um, st- Statisticians call these base rates. All right? let me give you an example. Let's say you're like on a floating ship out in the middle of nowhere. You wake up, and you're in a room with 50 people. And there are people all, all along the banister at the top with machine guns. And there's a guy who comes down the middle. He says, listen, you're gonna pick five people or four people out of this group. You're the 50th person to make a basketball team. We're going to make 10 basketball teams. We're going to play a tournament, and the team that wins lives and everybody else dies. Okay? Now, you don't know any of the 49 people that you're going to pick from. What are you going to look for? Bigot. Right? You're a bigot. Because you're probably going to look for a relative height, athletic-looking, you know, a little bit of swagger. I mean, you're going to—certain kind of shoulders, hips, physique. You're going to look in their eye. They, are they confident? You're going to look people over and you're going to— because you're going to play the base rates because that's what human beings do. Our brains usually work in one of two ways. We think fast, we think slow. Slow is like reason. What does this look like? Let's work this out. Fast is like, I already know these things. I need to apply them. And our brain is functioning fast most of the time. And when it functions fast, it relies on stereotypes. That is, percentage base rates to make all of its decisions. Right? And it happens before you even know it. And so human beings function like that all the time. And you can't not know that. You know what you think the base rate is, and you're going to function on the basis of it. Unless you have an interruption moral code in it. Where in your convictional life, in your mind, you believe we don't follow that base rate. That is, there's a moral reason that intercedes and says, yes, that's the base rate, and yes, it may cost me a lot, but we don't follow that base rate for this reason that's not in my self-interest. And now you might think, well, that's not really true. No, it is true, because we play to base rates even when the percentage chance of them happening is enormously small, if the result we believe is catastrophic. For example, I pay real money for life insurance. Can you believe that? Try— term life insurance. Every year, I pay like a pile of money for that. Money that could buy me a really nice hunting rifle, right? But every year, I pay it. For what percent chance that I'm going to die this year? Extremely small. It's why I can get the policy, right? But why do I do it? I play to the base rate. That is, I pay lots of money because something that is less than one percent might happen, but if it does happen, the cost is so high that I do it anyway. What's the personal cost of being mean to somebody or not paying any attention to them? It's probably very low. And if you think that the likelihood that they might be mean to you or their kids might not be a good influence on your kids or whatever is good enough, you'll do that in a second. Right? <sighs> So what—in fact, the guy who wrote um, Thinking Fast and Slow is actually a religious Jew, and he actually said, this is why we, we all racially profile, and yet we still shouldn't. He said, statistically, racial profiling works. If you are a limited creature that doesn't have expansive knowledge and you're playing percentages, and you will, unless you decide for some greater moral reason that is worth whatever cost you could suffer at that 1%, it overcomes that. That is, something big like those people are made in God's image. Something like that. In our culture, it is generally taught that the way we will come to love each other is through empathy. There's a little bit of truth to that. There is a little bit of truth to that. But here's the problem. We live in a technological culture where we're becoming increasingly sophisticated at separating ourselves from people we're not like. How much empathy is going to be produced by such a culture? None. In fact, increasingly less. So we have an ideology that says we're going to come closer to each other through empathy. We have a technological market reality and living space reality and otherwise social reality that is separating people from each other more and more. That is, that doesn't work. This idea is not going to produce the outcome we want given reality. That is, something is going to have to overcome the technological separation to bring people together so that they can build that empathy that is bigger than the reasons why they would not be together. Hence, be here at four o'clock. Right? That is, if you believe that other people who are not like you, that you would use your Facebook and Google preferences to separate from, are made in God's image— their problems matter. Knowing them matters for you. It's necessary for enrichment. If you're going to cooperate across all kinds of cultural lines to bring the creative potential out of people in the world, this has to be done. We're here for a reason. This is our work. This is how we raise our children together. This, this has to happen. That motivation will bring the technologically separated people together that may produce empathy, together with a belief in the image of God, may produce something good. It'll frame your view of others. (laughs) Just moving on, right? It'll frame your view of others. That is, non-Christians who don't believe what we believe have the image of God. Their philosophy is always going to be better than it should be. And we are affected by the fall. That is, our right views will never be as good as they should be. Hence, a reason to be humble and not self-righteous and listen to other people, even if we believe we know they're wrong. I don't know of another good motivation for that other than just sort of simple, simple humility. There are ways to get there, but that one is powerful enough to listen to people that you really despise. Like, you can, you can like, John Stewart will, mill your way there, like, well, you could be wrong, and so you should listen to everybody's view, and maybe, yeah, but what happens when you're taught out of political media that you should morally despise everybody who disagrees with you and, like, sue them and take away their personal property and all of that, You think John Stuart Mill is going to get you there? Because I don't think so. I think you're going to have to believe the person that you've been taught to morally despise is a person created in God's image, that you dare not treat in a certain way, that their view is better than you think it is, and yours is worse than you think it is. That is a theological conviction that produces a moral good and a spiritual good that I don't think can be produced truly in real life among real people. In another way—I don't know another way—that I've seen work. And it frames your treatment of others. That is that whole empathy point I made before. And lastly, and quickly, what about what we've been—we are said to have dominion over, right? Fill the earth, have dominion over it. What does that mean? My wife really wanted to go to the No movie that came out. I really don't like these new Hollywood Bible-destroying sorts of movies. I think they're terrible, and um, I didn't want to go. But my wife asked me to take her, so I took her to the IMAX, the big one that moves around real fast and makes you sick to your stomach. And, um— We watched it, and it was about what I expected, Um, but one of the—the way they ran the plot line was really weird. But one of the things that I thought was getting at something relatively related to the Bible was that both the main protagonist—Noah, in this case—and the main antagonist, which was this guy named Tubal Cain, if you've never heard of him, he was the first guy, like in Genesis 5, who makes things out of metal so he must have been an industrialist, which means he hates the environment and destroys everything in the whole world and therefore eats meat, right? As opposed to the guy that somehow scrapes lichen into a vial and sustains his family somehow by that means, okay? But the point is, is that in the movie, both characters quote Genesis 1, 27, and 28, that the creator said that we were to have dominion over the world, right? To cain meant that means I can do whatever I want with it. And Noah was like, I think that means we're supposed to shepherd it, right? The point there is, it's not what do these characters. But the question then is, God did say to have dominion. Was, what did God mean by that? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, that's what matters, right? What did God mean by have dominion? Did He mean decimate the environment? Did He mean be vegetarians? Did He? What did He mean, right? And maybe one of the best places to know a start of what he meant by that as to what sort of sector to be in is actually in the Sabbath command in Deuteronomy 5. He's talking about the ethic of not abusing and oppressing that which you can't have, have authority over through a command that every seven days, everybody rests. And so it starts out with, on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You shall not do any work. That is you, the person in charge. And then it says, nor your manservant or... or female servant—that is, none of your servants—that you have authority to make work on that day. You can't make them work. And then it goes on to the animals, and it says, nor your ox or donkey or any of your animals. That is, when, when you take rest for yourself, you have to actually even give it to your livestock. If you read on in the Torah, that actually is then moved on and applied to the land, that every seven years, all of the land is to rest, and every 50 years, everything rests for the whole year. It includes commands for Sabbath years off and all these kinds of things. That is, that human beings were supposed to use their creative potential. Part of that was to provide for themselves. Part of it was to bring out the potential of the earth. And there is some kind of thing between that that we're going to have to argue about in this thing we call society. But it must start from the idea that we were created to be shepherds of the earth, stewards, managers. And whose ethic are we supposed to manage? That is, Our bosses. Like any of us who are bosses, we know what we want the people who we have authority over to do. We want them to do what we would do. We want them to take the, our ethic and our vision and what we want to happen and apply it to their sector. And there are certain things that you, I think you can say, is that what God wants me to do with this world that belongs to him or not? You could ask certain questions, and it will lead to a sort of, I think, environmentally conscious care of creation that's conservationist, but still doesn't sacrifice huge numbers of humans and destroy people's ability to do things in order for it—for politicizing the environment, and all these kinds of things. So for example, let me give you two quick examples. Not caring about how we were using creation has destroyed the fish populations of the Mediterranean Sea and everything up close to New Brunswick in terms of cod. When that happens environmentally, you know what happens? They don't recover. What happens is another species comes in that you don't want to eat, And takes over the space the cod used to have So they can't recover, they die out And so it doesn't replenish itself when we just stop using it And we didn't think that through And we apparently didn't care enough And so all these places where we used to be able to receive bountifully from the ocean Because we didn't think that through And didn't seem to care enough They may be irreparably damaged And it may be incredibly difficult to save them Right? On the other hand DDT doesn't do anything to birds or their eggs or fish, and by outlawing it in Africa, it cost 50 million black children their lives over the last 50 years. Because we all read Silent Spring and felt bad about baby ospreys that weren't dying. The politicization of this is widespread, and one of the things I'm going to talk about over the next three weeks is how to be Christian and not get captured by one view or the other which we're bad at, us evangelicals. We're bad at that. But we still start from this place. God put us here as shepherds, as vice regents, as those in charge of the earth and caring for it and figuring out how that all goes. Because we're supposed to come back, when Christ redeems us in the redemption mandate, we're supposed to come back to a reliving and re-embracing of the creation mandate until that creation mandate is all set right in a new creation. Now that may all sound complicated. It is kind of complicated. Here's how you make it really, really simple. You don't have to know how all that functions to live it out. You don't have—you don't have to understand all the intricacies of the creation mandate or the redemption mandate to live it out. You just have to look to the one who does. There is one who came and lived true humanity in a relationship to the creation mandate and the redemption mandate. And if we're to understand our Bibles decently well, he spent, what, 10 times longer doing the creation mandate than the redemption mandate? Right? 30 years, probably a carpenter providing for his family because his father might have died. He's the oldest son. He's fulfilling the creation mandate. He may have stepped in for a, as a father. Right? We don't know some of that stuff, but he was not preaching, clearly. And then he did three years of ministry. That's 10 to 1 as far as I can tell. I don't know why he did that, but he, apparently he thought, as in the incarnate Son and Savior, he should give some of his time to the creation mandate before he unleashed the redemption mandate in its full flowering. You can live out the creation mandate. You can embrace the image of God. You can begin to put to death the sinful condition. You can recognize your worth. You can begin to treat people like they should. You can be a proper vice regent in the world. You can be rightly related to the glory of God, and you don't have to know how all that works. All you have to do is to look to the one who does. The one who is true humanity, who reflects the glory of God, and through his power, and through his death, and through his resurrection, he can remake you into it. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've taught us um, these things in the scriptures. Please help people hold on to understand and contemplate the things I've said that you agree with and help them to not the things that you wouldn't. I pray that we would be um, positively afflicted by some of these truths and greatly encouraged by them, knowing that in Christ we can be brought to the place we need to be, whether we understand how all the gears work. Help us to trust him and to believe in him and to lean into him I'm praying in Jesus' name.